Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're halfway into this season of Burning Books. It's called Declaration Centenary wherein we're looking at books about Israel by writers from within and without. They include Syed Kashua, Asaf Gavron, Orly Castell-Bloom, Zachary Lazar, S. Yizar, Yoel Hoffman, and Omri Boom. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English. Some are contemporary, others classics. Today we're looking at Dror Burstein's unusual book, Netanya. Is it a novel? Yes. Memoirs? those two. Is it a book of geology? Maybe anthropology? I think it is. Marine biology? Definitely. It's a book that when it's good, it's scintillating, and it's usually good. It was published in 2013 and translated from the Hebrew the same year by Todd Hasak Louis. In the summer of 2009, I read with an amazement that turned on occasion into awe, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee's book, Rare Earth. And it was at dusk, while reading their chapter on the moon, that I left my house, book in hand, lay down on the bench on my street in Tel Aviv, Smuts Boulevard, and stared up at the moon of the end of the month of Tammuz, unable to read any further. If this is not a perfect opening sentence, if these words do not settle you immediately into a time and place while making you curious to know what happens next, then I don't know what to do with you. A series of potentially pertinent facts, summer of 2009, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee's Rare Earth, The Moon, Smuts Boulevard, a seemingly random collection of science, season, streetscape that, because it is in a novel and therefore not at all random, makes the randomness of the wider world seem full of potential meaning. Now, is there anything better a book can do? Is there any better way to begin a story? For a long time, Natanya continues in this vein. A cobbling of the seemingly random that does nothing less than set aglow the world around the reader. For, as hinted in that first paragraph, Burstein's story proceeds at the dizziest of heights and depths. He'll talk in one sentence about the decreasing mass of the sun, the next about trilobites, tiny fossils of extinct marine anthropods that can be found on the Mediterranean coast, among other places. Now, if we're going to identify a line that might link these explorations of the incredibly large and incredibly small, the ancient and the contemporary, it comes in one of Burstein's early observations, which can be taken as a theme for the book as a whole. How flimsy our existence is. How many conditions must exist and must continue to exist over the course of millions of years so that a single flower or a single pencil or a single book might exist? Burstein's narrator, who is somewhat inevitably called Dror Burstein, responds to the sentence with an awe appropriate to the sensitive writer, the type who stops midway through a particularly resonant sentence to walk outside, sit on a bench, and stare at the star-filled sky. This thought unnerved me that night on the bench, and it unnerves me still. For a moment, I felt like a string being strummed by a thousand fingers, and I closed my eyes. 
Our existence on this planet hangs by a thread. Every tomato and every onion is such an enormous miracle you could collapse with awe in a vegetable market. That phrase. A string being strummed by a thousand fingers. How effing gorgeous. And also in its allusion, intentional or unintentional, to Pythagoras, philosopher of the heavens, who often used music to describe the form of the heavens. How exciting. Indeed, the best of Netanya works on the subject of contingency, as described in the above excerpt. How many things are necessary for us to be here? How many of those things are accidents? How fragile and therefore precious our lives are? I can't help it. I'm going for another excerpt here to give you a more specific picture. In order for our lives to exist, says Rare Earth, we must be positioned at the proper distance from the sun and its heat, a distance at which water can remain in a liquid state. But that's not all. It's not only the distance from the sun that matters, but the mass of the sun as well, so that it won't send out too many damaging rays on the one hand, and can keep us in a stable orbit around it without, at the same time, burning us to a crisp. The mass of the Earth too is vital, since it has to be large enough to maintain its atmosphere and oceans, yet not so big that its gravity would prevent us from being able to lift our feet or hands or a pen or a prayer book. And then, in order for us to be able to live, there has to be the right proportion of oxygen in the atmosphere, not too much and not too little, not to mention the fact that this perfect proportion of oxygen to other gases had to appear at precisely the right moment in the history of planet Earth, at the very moment in which our lungs had developed and began to cry out for it. At the moment, I mean, when we first had any lungs at all. Without the right proportion of oxygen, lung-bearing creatures wouldn't have been able to evolve, and so we wouldn't have been able to evolve ourselves. In order for life to have evolved in the solar system, it had to be located in a galaxy suitable to such evolution, a galaxy in which there were enough heavy elements. The solar system needed to be neither too small nor elliptical, and its position in the galaxy neither too central nor too marginal. We need a large moon as well. You could extend the list of requirements until this book's last page, and in fact to infinity. The absence of even one of them would have been enough, I saw, to destroy our world. Later in the book, Burstein, auteur and narrator, discusses precise oxygen levels and the fractions of percents required to keep life in balance, or to screw it up. If this sounds repetitive, yes, I guess you could say it is. But for me, this repetition is effective. While parts of Burstein's story revolve tightly around the same point, Every revolution gives the reader fresh perspectives. Sometimes the scale is macrocosmic, sometimes microcosmic, sometimes extraordinary, sometimes mundane. But in sum, the examinations of our precariousness and the precariousness of life on Earth, the precariousness of the possibility of witnessing, considering, recording this life, give the reader a feeling of horreur vacui, a sense of a void over which we hover, usually unconsciously, in a kind of trance or ignorance. Actually, we live over the void while contributing in our own small but ineluctable way to the growing disaster. Whether it's polluting the Yarkon River, the river that flows limply through the northern section of Tel Aviv, or contributing to the ever-rising levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through agriculture and industrialization, which obscures our views of the night sky, which in a book that elevates the heavens counts as a particular kind of crime, 
In all these ways, we are helping to drive ourselves back, according to the authors of Rare Earth and to the narrator Burstein, to an Eocene climate, a time when palm and date trees grew in Antarctica, that is, before human life on Earth. Now, I don't read books about environmental catastrophes. I'll read an article here or there, but an entire book, that would simply be too depressing for me. And I'm a person who spent years studying the representation and misrepresentation of genocide. So I can read books about that for years, and I still do, but pending environmental apocalypse, that's too much. So while Netanya is a book that could be construed in this vein, I chose to interpret the book as a comment about our lives on Earth, rather than the onrushing evisceration of such life by environmental powers far in excess of our own. Actually, I chose to see the novel as something more specific than our lives. I looked at it as a story about the narrator. That's because when Netanya is musing over Burstein's recent readings about the solar system, planetary evolution, etc., it's interjecting personal history. Stories about his youth on the seaside city of Netanya. Burstein was born in 1970. About the hotel his grandfather managed, or perhaps managed is too strong a word, perhaps oversaw is more accurate. About his grandfather's peregrinations around Israel, the relatives he left behind in Europe. Stories about kidnapped children, a family left behind in the Holocaust, a soldier killed in the Yom Kippur War of 1973, broken threads of some greater family and perhaps national saga. Or at least that's what it seemed to me. Perhaps I've given this away to some degree, but you may already be able to tell that the parts of the book that operated on the macro and micro scale, the stars and the distant galaxies and oxygen levels and fossils of marine creatures, these were wonderful. The personal history, counterpoints to the extraordinary, did not elicit the same strong response. Often they seemed tantalizingly related to the larger tales, but I was unable to make what seemed to be a satisfying connection. For example, Burstein makes frequent references to his elementary school astronomy class, wherein he learned basic facts, watched the night sky, took field trips to chart the stars, and generally excelled as a student of the cosmos. Surely there's got to be a connection here between young drawer's universe and the one the adult drawer is describing in Netanya. Here's what the author says. These things I am now writing, in the summer of 2009, are nothing more than an extension of my old astronomy notebook from the class in 1984. You write a few lines at the age of 14, and near the age of 40 you complete what you began a quarter century earlier. At other junctures he picks up this theme and redescribes the above stories, connecting them into some kind of net, where The ends of my net are connected to the nets of every human being and of everything. All of these things are planets in my solar system, or in what I would call my universe, which is in fact every person's universe, just as the universe of each person is my universe as well. In between these lines, though, we get a sense the connections are there only because Burstein says they are there. By virtue of a murder, a death, an animal, a cosmic event being represented by words and existing among other words between the same two covers, I guess they are connected. And it's true that I can confirm that they are, insofar as having read this book, I now connect these events in my mind but I wonder if there are connections that are stronger or more apparent than that and that I just missed. 
And yet I'm wrong-footed when, about halfway through the novel, the narrator claims that the story of the grandfather's escape from the war and his son's death in another war, a continent and a generation away, are at the heart of the matter. There's no need for psychologists in this case. That every word written here deals with that same meteor strike which took place on October 9, 1973. A meteor struck Natanya, but no one paid attention except me. My grandfather came here and thus survived the Holocaust that fell upon his family about five or six years later. But the force of his arrival also gave birth to his son Shalom, who was killed in the Golan Heights at the age of 21 during his pre-release vacation. He was the youngest son. His two older brothers remained, one of whom is my father. My grandfather entered his Ice Age in October 1973. My grandfather's Ice Age took the appearance of diabetes and heavy smoking. What is called the Pleistocene began two and a half million years ago and lasted until just around 12,000 years ago. This was the last severe Ice Age, and my grandfather entered his Pleistocene then, which felt to him as if it lasted just as long as the other one, and only came to an end with his death. In relation to geological epochs, he lived in what could be called the Little Ice Age, as do hundreds and thousands of bereaved parents and those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, whose numbers multiply here from day to day. Had Burstein not stated this so baldly, I don't know that I would have understood the book this way. And this makes me wonder if, A, the author might be playing a trick, bringing something to the fore that may not belong there, an experiment in irony perhaps, or B, if the author is talking squarely, and these two relatively unrelated deaths are the twin hearts at the center of Netanya. Of course, it could just be both A or B, or neither, but considering these possibilities did not get me further ahead. So, the picture I've tried to paint so far, a book that travels between scales, encompassing the largest of themes, life, survival, death, rapture, continuity, disaster, in a number of strange and entirely enchanting ways. It is a book about which I can't say anything definitive, and certainly that is one of its strengths. Ever since reading the novels of Georges Perec, specifically his own quasi-pseudo-crypto-memoirs, W or the Memory of Childhood, which has been, for me, the key to Perec's unique, and I do mean unique, universe, I've been pondering the possibilities of novels without ends. Novels that do not merely suggest or say to be continued, but are to be continued. Many aspire to this goal, many pretend, few achieve. Perec's books are without end because they spill out into the world. Wherever you look, you see reminders of W or the memory of childhood, or a void, or life, a user's manual, to name a couple of his others. And as the material that exists in the pages spills out into the wider world, the wider world begins to infiltrate the pages of the book, joining forces in a sense. Natanya achieves a similar effect. The next time you look up at the sky, out onto the water, or read certain stories in the newspaper, Burstein's novel walks into your field of vision. The flip side of this book, Beyond Borders, is that it takes much more from the reader, and that's because when you scatter a bunch of pieces before the reader, the reader will try to assemble them like puzzle to form a bigger picture. 
The more distantly the pieces are scattered, the more the reader has to invest to link them. It's a dangerous game in some senses. I freely admitted I invested a great deal in Parekh because of his reputation, which I happily confirm as a genius. I don't think I rose to the same levels of dedication. In fact, I know I didn't when it came to Burstein. Part of this, too, came with a lot of background research on Parekh, especially David Bellis's amazing and mammoth biography of the writer. There is no similar stock of required reading to help me catch up on Burstein. If there were, I would read it, though. I'd read it to better understand Natanya. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books, Declaration Centenary Season, will be I Pity the Poor Immigrant, which takes as its central character the gangster Meyer Lansky and is written by the American author Zachary Lazar. Burning Books is part of the Latopia Network of Podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. Finally, you can reach me at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Natalie Matheson, Hakan Ozgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program, and as always, go Jays. Hey.